Welcome to the Martin Bailey Photography Podcast. It's December 30, 2013, and this is episode 402. Having just achieved that major milestone of 400 podcast episodes, a lot of people have asked me to reflect on my journey and how I got to this point in my life. The end of a year is always a good time to reflect on what got us to where we are, so I thought this would be a good time to do this as we set our sights firmly on the future. And this is going to be a pretty long episode, so I wanted to tell you now that I've got a... I can't tell you many details at the moment, but I've got a bit of an announcement at the end of the podcast, and if you want to know what that is, just uh, go to the blog and check, go to mbp.ac slash 402 and take a look at the links at the bottom of the blog post for this week. Um, It's pretty special and I'm hoping that you are going to be as excited about it as I am. There's not a lot of photography related information in the first part of this but I do want to give you a bit of information on my early years because they were important, an important aspect in shaping who I am today. Although not totally relevant, I've been asked enough times to talk more about this, so here we go. I was born, obviously, in England in a small town called Long Eaton between Nottingham and Derby in the Midlands. I spent a lot of time in the local park and countryside as a kid, getting filthy in the woods and swimming in the canal and brooks and streams. I left high school at 16, as we do in England, and... This was in 1983, in the middle of Thatcher's Britain. Unemployment was at record highs, and there were strikes and riots happening all over the country. No one that I can recall from school went to university. I myself was a terrible student. I was more interested in showing off in front of my friends than studying, but there seemed little point in studying anyway with no jobs waiting for us and I hadn't yet learned the worth of an education or making your own future. My first job was a training scheme working as a mechanic for which I earned a whopping £25 a week which is about $40 so for a 40 hour week I was getting about a dollar an hour. I moved on to a slightly better job fitting burglar alarms and After doing that for a while, I went self-employed on the advice of the owner of the company with the promise of higher pay. This was a three-man company initially, two partners and me, and they split the partnership and I went to work for one of the two partners. It wasn't until I went self-employed that I realised that this was just a way of letting me go without any severance. Pretty much as soon as I was no longer an employee, the contracts dried up and I had to start thinking of my next job and learned an important lesson in trust and business. Although it wouldn't be the last time that I'd fall foul like this. I didn't resent the old boss at all. I didn't want a handout. It was a one, It was just one man trying to feed his family. And although I should have been smarter... The lesson I learned was worth more than any pittance of severance pay that he could have offered. I'd probably not have taken it anyway, to be honest. 
however entitled I might have been. I learned a lot of things as a result of my own naivety, and my parents left me to make my own mistakes. I was still only 17, but I didn't really talk with my parents about stuff like this. They had been divorced for a few years by this point, and although I still saw my dad regularly, neither of them ever tried to steer me in any directions. Their philosophy was to let me make my own mistakes, and then I'd have no one to blame but myself when things went wrong. I didn't want a factory job, but with nothing else available, I took a job at at the Levers Lace factory where my mum worked doing the accounts, At least there was a chance of making a trade out of this job though. I quickly moved into a position where I would apprentice as a lever's lace engineer or a twist hand as they're known. As I learned the trade, my salary increased to a point where I was earning more than all of my friends. At the end of the day though, it was still a factory job and once you'd learned how to run those big old wrought iron lace machines, it wasn't very challenging. Despite being a terrible student at school, I find myself wanting to use my brain. I had started looking into going to night school to learn German, and I walked into the factory canteen one Monday morning and saw an ad in the local paper for a job in Japan making lace. I went for the interview, and within a week I landed in Tokyo and was whisked off to Fukushima, where I worked doing the same job making lace on 100-year-old Nottingham lace machines for a further four years. Now, though, I was in a position to learn Japanese, which I thought was pretty cool. I did the job and in the evening spent hours each day studying Japanese. I learned a lot of vocabulary and grammar in the first year and then I started to to learn how to read and write, taking another two years to learn all 2,000 or so daily-use kanji characters. After almost four years though, the contract was not extended and as the other five Englishmen that I'd spent the last few years working with left for home, I moved to Sendai and put my savings towards uh, putting myself through college. Moving to Japan changed my life. I finally understood the worth of studying. College was great. I was finally able to give the old grey matter a workout. I spent a couple of years learning multimedia including computer science, computer graphics, and even Adobe Illustrator and Photoshop. This was, it gave me a great base, and it was way back, this was between 95 and 97. Uh, So having this, you know, learned Japanese, and now having a good foundation in computer skills, I was snapped up by a new company being formed in Tokyo when I graduated. It was at this point that I found out that I've been lied to again. When I joined the college, the guy that was recruiting foreign students, mainly Korean and Chinese students, had told me that I'd qualify for a visa to work in Japan when I graduated, but this wasn't true. It was only a two-year college course, and although if I'd done the same two years at a university, I would have qualified, but college apparently doesn't mean zip in Japan, so I had to go back to England. That turned out not to be a bad thing though. I was able to renovate my old house that I'd bought when I was 19 and most importantly I was able to be with my dad when he died of cancer. 
Within a few months of arriving back in England in April 1997, he was diagnosed with stomach cancer and it had spread to his spine. He died six months later, but I spent his last night at the side of his hospital bed, which would never have happened if I'd still been in Japan. I got a job supporting the Japanese translation team at an AS400 software company in Birmingham, which I did for almost two years, while almost daily refusing contracts to work in the London area. I'd signed up with a bunch of recruiting agencies when I first arrived back in England, and I got calls literally almost daily. Continuing the education theme, I studied for and passed the six Microsoft exams to obtain an MCSE or Microsoft Certified Systems Engineer qualification, which I was really proud of at the time. And it was making me even more enticing to various companies. I didn't want to move to London, and so I'd refused them all until one day I received a call from a UK R&D centre of a Florida-based company called Citrix Systems. And for some reason... The job just felt right. I went for the interview, got the job and worked for them as a contractor for a year. But I was commuting and working four four days a week from Monday to Thursday, staying in a bed and breakfast and then going home to Nottingham for the weekend. Although I was enjoying the work, the commute started to become a bit tedious. So I was ready to start looking for other work closer to home when the director called me into his office and asked me if I was interested in working in Tokyo on a new R&D team that they were starting. I just asked where I needed to sign. I worked in the UK for a few more months as we sorted out my visa and then returned to Japan, to Tokyo, in August 2000. The city was a lot different to Fukushima in the countryside and even Sendai, which is the largest city in Tohoku, the northeastern part of Japan. But I got used to it and my wife and I settled down in an apartment in Meguro for the next 10 years. I continued to enjoy the work, but during those 10 years, photography became an increasingly important part of my life. Stepping back in time again now, I had my first exposure to photography on holidays with my friend Jim and his parents. Jim's dad, his name was Robert, but we called him Jim as well, had an old Russian Zenit camera and would sometimes allow me to look through the viewfinder and release the shutter as he photographed the landscapes in Cornwall. These memories were from holidays when I was 10 and 11, so I that, gets, that takes us back to about 1978-79. I'd actually played with an old Polaroid years ago that my dad brought home, but then promptly sold as he realised how expensive the film was. This recollection was way too faint to be a claim that I'd been into photography or anything like that as a kid. After the occasional frame with my friend's dad's Zenit camera... I bought a crappy 110 film camera, a 110 film camera, when I was about 15 and enjoyed capturing holiday snaps with that too, but didn't really start to seriously consider what I was doing photographically until I was in my early 20s. I had started hiking in the Peak District in Derbyshire and took took with me a 
plastic, literally a plastic 35mm film camera with a plastic lens. There was no zoom or anything like that. It was literally, it was almost a disposable camera. Probably came free with some 35mm film, but I can't remember. I really, though, with that camera, started to think about my subject and framing from this point. For the next few years, that my successes were more happy accidents, but I was starting to develop my eye from around this this time. Shortly after this, I moved to Japan for the first time in 1991, when I was 24, and I the totally different culture and beautiful countryside of northern Japan screamed out to be photographed. I bought my first SLR camera the in, right there in Fukushima and I started to shoot the hills and mountains as I was hiking again in the nearby countryside. My brother had given me a book on photography for Christmas. I think it was the Christmas that I came out to Japan and I went through that book with a fine-tooth comb while staying in the hotel that was my home for the first six months in Fukushima. I learned a lot of good basics, and I also read that serious photographers use slide film, and having given Fujichrome Velvia a try early on, I was hooked on the quality. I also found the necessity to get the exposure just right, stimulating and challenging, and this is probably why ideal exposure and exposing to the right has been such a large part of my photography to the present. After I'd been in Japan for just over a year, in 1992, I made a trip to Mount Fuji and climbed through the night with two friends and then froze our asses off as we waited for the sun to rise. But when it did, there was a wave of warmth as welcomed as the beauty of that sunrise, both of which will remain with me. They're still very, very fond memories It's hard to believe, thinking back though, that this was almost 22 years ago now. Considering the pace at which we go through camera bodies and lenses as the resolution of digital cameras increases, my second SLR camera that I bought back then, an EOS 100, was my only camera for 10 years. I owned three lenses too. I owned a 24mm f2.8 prime lens, a 35 to 135mm and a 100 to 300mm zoom lens. The 24mm was a great lens for the price. I think I paid a couple of hundred dollars for it. But the two zoom lenses were absolute crap. I was happy enough with them though, until the digital age came and showed me the flaws in the lenses. Probably one of my favourite photos from these early years was this one that I'm showing now in the Enhanced Podcast or on the blog. And this was shot an hour or so after sunrise as we started our descent from the summit of Mount Fuji. I'd been learning composition and lighting and I knew enough by this point to frame the shot in a pretty pleasing way. And I placed the sun behind the bar of the Torii, which is a Shinto gate. And that was obviously going to make make sure that there was no no huge amount of flare but it, I was using starting to use techniques and use my head a little bit and I was obviously drawn to this shot by the western couple hugging as they enjoyed the sunrise 
I had a couple of dry years while attending college in Sendai. Not only could I not afford to buy film or to get it processed, I was working in a bar for a while and then as an English conversation teacher for the last 18 months or so of college, uh, to basically to pay my tuition fees. So I was at college all day and at the school until after nine every night. And I worked Saturdays and Sundays became my only day to do household chores and have a bit of rest, really. So photography was forced to the back burner. I took my camera back to England too, but was too busy working and trying to build a life that I I really didn't have a lot of time for photography. So those three years as well were pretty dry. I bought my first digital camera, a Canon PowerShot S10, during a business trip to Florida, which was just before I came back to Japan in 2000. That was a piece of crap too, but it was enough to get me started in digital and got me thinking about buying my first digital SLR, which was the incredibly expensive at the time EOS D30. This was only a 3 megapixel camera, but it really pulled me back into photography with a vengeance. It was from this time that I started to make the effort to get up at ridiculous hours and drive out or into the countryside, sometimes even through the night, for a dawn shoot, for example. I started to spend weekends out doing photography, and one of my earliest favourites with the D30 was this shot of Mount Fuji at dawn. And by this time I was really appreciating how light affects the scene and how adding an additional element like the fisherman in the boat to the left of this image can really help to build their appeal. The cameras started to change faster with resolution doubling every few years and with that the flaws in even the early L lenses started to show. I remember an early argument with my wife over buying buying new lenses. When I bought the D30, I thought that I would only need to replace the body because I already had three lenses, which had been fine for the previous 10 years to that point. So, you know, I mean, I soon found that the quality just wasn't up to scratch, though. And I started to go down that slippery L lens slope and then as resolution increased, even had to start replacing them. Luckily for me though, I was in a job, a good job, and I was able to buy a few key items. And as the quality of my images increased, sharing images on the internet started to become much easier and more accessible. Towards the end of 2003, I felt that I had Uh, It was time really to start to build a web presence. So 10 years ago now was when I registered and started to build Martin Bailey Photography with the current domain name. I built in the ability to sell prints and started to make the occasional sale, which was incredibly confidence building. Then almost two years after that, a friend from the UK sent me an email, a short email that would change my life. He introduced me to podcasts. As soon as I heard Brooks Jensen's Lenswork podcast and Chris Marquardt's Tips from the Top Floor podcast, 
I knew that this was something that I needed to start doing myself. Before the end of the week, literally, I had built a back end to register and maintain my podcast entries in a database and I built a new, a, you know, a new, few new pages on my website so that I could click buttons and build the feeds for iTunes and the podcast page for people to download the media files directly. I recorded episode one, The Pink Flamingo Stare, and released it shortly before another business trip to Florida, and the response blew me away. It was a time when podcasts were still new and people were hungry for them. Most of all, I produced the third photography-related podcast available, so people picked up on it quickly. There was still no way to see just how many people were downloading the episodes, but the amount of email of support that I received really did blow me away. Honestly, though, I can't listen to the original episode. The audio quality and the production make me cringe, but it was a start. And it turned out to be not just the start of a new podcast, but the start of my road to a more enriched and fulfilling photographic life. I won't go into too much detail in this episode, but in the Craft and Vision Photograph Digital Magazine Issue 5, I wrote about the mental checklist. Although my goal with the podcast was to help others based on my own photography-related experiences, I started to find myself running through a mental checklist as I worked and started to prevent my own mistakes in my photography and improve my composition, etc., just by thinking through each step as though I was preparing to record the next episode of the podcast. There's a huge lesson to be learned here, as we can all do this, and this is what my article in Photograph Issue 5 was all about, so do grab a copy if you're interested in hearing more about that. It's ironic, though, that I thought I was a good enough photographer to try to help others when I started to do the podcast in September 2005. But that same podcast then went on to help me improve my own photography. It also goes to show that we never arrive as such. I'm still learning every time I pick up my camera or when I open a new book or ebook on photography. I talked about some of my other major turning points in August 2013 in episode 383. So again, I won't go into too much detail here, but things continued to grow and I found myself doing our first Hokkaido Winter Wonderland workshop at the end of January in 2008, almost two and a half years after starting the podcast. I just about broke even and if you don't include all of the gear that I bought based on what I'd seen you know, the participants all bought some great gear with them. And I ended up going home and spending a few thousand dollars on all of that. Um, but, you know, it, the money was not the important part of this first tour. One of the most important things to do is to actually start something. People spend so much time dreaming of what they want to do and often spend countless hours even planning how to make that happen. 
but then failed to take the final step and actually start the wheels in motion. Needless to say, if you don't start, you'll never know if it would have been a success or a failure. The worst part about that is that because you didn't actually fail, you move on to the next idea with a faint feeling of success and satisfaction. But because you didn't actually do anything, you don't have the confidence to start the next project either. I think it's vitally important to actually start something and see if it flies. If it doesn't fly, at least you'll learn what doesn't work and hopefully apply that experience to your next idea. Apart from my tendency to over-trust people sometimes, another thing that I've learned over the last 10 years is that people are much faster with their mouths than their wallet. When I first started to talk about that first Hokkaido workshop, I had 12 people that had told me that they would definitely come if I planned, you know, did all of the planning and made it happen. Even though everyone knew when it was going to happen, there shouldn't have been any scheduling problems or anything like that, I ran that first tour with five participants. The same thing happened when I planned the Pixels to Pigment workshop in 2012. Those workshops and the tour itself was a huge success in that I paid for a world tour and met some amazing people, as well as getting to meet a lot of business associates and friends in person for the first time. But it cost me a couple of thousand dollars in the end. Why? Because I didn't have a booking page ready when I did my webinar with Photoshelter and x We had hundreds of people watching and I knew that I had to have a registration button ready and actually get a deposit from people as we were live. But one of the venues did not get back to me in time for me to lock in on the schedule, so I couldn't do this. I knew that it was a huge risk, but the dates of the webinar came and, you know, we, we were set and I just had to go ahead with it. And I asked people to sign up for a newsletter if they were definitely ready to sign up for the tour, for the workshops, once I was able to send them a registration link. The webinar resulted in over 100 registrations, and by the time we were able to lock in on the dates, I had enough people signed up to make the tour you know, relatively profitable. Remember that each of these people had signed up on the understanding that I only wanted to hear from people that would definitely attend the workshop. But when I sent out the final notification and request, only 20% of the list signed up. Of course, I totally appreciate those people, the 20% that did sign up, but 80% of the definite attendees didn't come. Some of them even emailed a terse reply that they couldn't even remember signing up for the email. This is how it is. If you want to make something happen, have a sign-up button in place from the start. You might get less people actually signing up, but if you ask for money to force the commitment, you reduce the number of tyre kickers considerably. The last thing that I want you to do here is to think that I'm complaining. Far from it. I learned an important lesson early on and then confirmed what I already knew was going to happen with the Pixels to Pigment sign-up process. At the end of the day, though, I'm eternally grateful to those first five Hokkaido workshop participants and to every person that's joined my subsequent tours. 
Every person that joined the Pixels to Pigment workshops too. Remember that every person that attends something like this is trusting you with their hard-earned money. Every one of you that's currently listening to or reading this podcast is giving me your precious time and I'm incredibly humbled by the fact that you do that. And I'm always over the moon when I'm able to help or inspire people in any way. In Japan they have a saying that kindness is not for the sake of the receiver. This is often misunderstood in modern day as people think that it means that you shouldn't spoil people by being kind to them. But the original meaning of that saying is that being kind to others is for your own sake, not theirs. And I'm a firm believer in this philosophy. It always feels good to help others. And although as a business we have to make money with some of our services and products, just the fact that I'm able to help so many people with their photographic lives is compensation enough. Another thing that I've not done often but have learned the hard way recently is not to try to cut corners financially. Until about two years ago I used to pay for a Vimeo Plus account. That gave me the ability to upload and display 1080p HD video. This used to cost me just $49 a year. Then Google Plus came along and shortly after the ability to record Hangouts on air, which is basically live video streamed and recorded to YouTube. I'd never been a huge fan of YouTube, but decided to make a go of it and uploaded most of my videos there. And after all, it's free, right? Almost immediately, I started to get copyright strikes against my The Moon video, a simple but quite beautiful bit of video footage of The Moon traversing the frame of the camera over five minutes. And I set that video to Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. I bought a license for the music from Unique Tracks and included the license information in the credits of the video as per instructions in the license document. Unfortunately, the robots that listen to the audio in videos don't read the credits. And I was plagued by these claims from the word go. Although these claims were often dropped quite quickly, This problem came to a head at the beginning of December this year when I I received a claim. Basically, UMG refused to release the claim. They wanted to take it to the next level. At the risk of having to fight this case in a court of law, I countered the claim and caused a bit of a stir with an open letter to YouTube and Google about the issue. Finally, on the morning of December 26, just a few days ago, the claim was released, so I went to the video to delete it to stop myself from getting another copyright strike, only to find that another robot had already tagged the image. The problem here is that if you have a copyright strike against your image, your YouTube against your YouTube account, sorry, you can't record Hangouts on air, and I need to be able to do that, so I couldn't just delete the video while I had a strike against it, or the strike would remain on my account. Finally yesterday, December 29th, I checked my YouTube account and found that the claim had been released. You don't get an email, you know, for for the first claim, so you have to go and proactively check. And I found that the claim had been released, so I deleted the video while I could. It's a shame that Google's business model for YouTube is based on slapping ads on videos 
that infringe copyright laws. And they have no way of protecting honest content creators. But the reason I raise this today is to make the point, as my wife often often says, sometimes nothing is as expensive as free. Although somewhat out of character, I'd figured that it would be a good idea to save that $49 a year that I was paying to Vimeo by moving to YouTube. After all, every yen that comes into this household is now much harder to earn than it ever was. Ultimately though, if you calculate the amount of time I've spent fighting more than 10 copyright claims over the last last few years, we're probably talking well over $4,000 worth of my time, not to mention all the stress that this has caused me. I am not usually that frugal a person, and I've never been afraid of investing a little money here and there to help my business, but this time I screwed up. I've recently just paid though $199 to Vimeo for their pro account, and unless they let the copyright vultures in like YouTube, I'll be happy to continue to pay that for the foreseeable future. Anyway, moving on. So, I started my workshops, and I started to attract the occasional sponsor for the podcast, and print sales started to increase. I started to feel as though there was a possibility of doing this, you know, going full-time with my photography. Having lived in Japan for 10 years, I'd just taken Japanese citizenship, as I never wanted to worry about visas again. Although I was mostly still happy in my old job, I started to feel confident that I was close enough to making a go of photography full-time if I could use all of my time to forward my business. Plus, I had my first Antarctica tour coming up and it, I didn't have enough paid leave to do it after taking time off to run my Japan Winter Wonderland tours and a few of the photography assignments that I was doing here and there. The time had come to cut the cord. I handed in my notice and left my old job towards the end of 2010 and incorporated Martin Bailey Photography KK. KK is the Japanese Kabushiki Kaisha, more commonly spoken as Kabushiki Gaisha, which is the same as adding ink to the end of a Western company name. It's not been easy, but with a lot of hard work, we're now in the black at the end of the uh, the start of the fourth fiscal year. We're, we're in profit. Writing for Craft and Vision has been incredibly enabling for me, and I'm eternally grateful to David Dushamin and the Craft and Vision team for inviting me on board. It was, of course, the hard work that I'd put into creating and putting out content and proving that I could write and teach that contributed to this happening. I've worked harder over the last three and a half years since making the jump than I've ever worked in my life. But it's been a labour of love, and I can't stress enough how unbelievably liberating it is to steer your own ship on the seas of business. One of the things that was starting to frustrate me in my old job was not having the power to decide the direction of my team, even as a senior manager. Now I decide what gets done and what what doesn't get done. Of course, I'm also the one that has to do that work too, But when it's work that you decide needs doing, you put your back into it and you get it done, one task at a time. One of the biggest misconceptions that I had, though, was that I'd have more time for photography. Once this was 
you know, all I had to do. I should have more time. This isn't the case. I spent the whole of Christmas Day, for example, this year preparing accounts for a Boxing Day meeting with my accountant. There is no doubt that a good part of my success so far comes down to the kindness of people like David and the Craft and Vision team for giving me a chance to write for them, as well as people that have teamed up with me to make some of my international tours and workshops possible. And, of course, to every person that has attended my tours and workshops, or buy a print or a product from us. Some people probably consider me lucky for having been presented with these opportunities, and I agree, but I'm a firm believer in the old adage that fortune favours the hard worker. Although I've ended up shooting less when I'm not actively on tours and workshops, my life is more photography-centric than it's ever been. I've just completed my third Craft & Vision ebook that should be released early next year, and I have a few new products in the pipeline too that I'm confident will be a hit once I can get them completed. I've stopped trying to get photography assignment work as such. I find the conversations with people that, that have no idea of how to work with photographers or why photography costs money, for example, very frustrating. And my business model has morphed to the point where it's no longer necessary for me to do those assignments to help me pay the rent. I teach and tour and make photography primarily for myself, but that now makes its way into my offset stock library, for example, which has started to pay nicely. Uh, of course, I use my own images to illustrate not only my tour and workshop pages, but my craft and vision ebooks and magazine articles are illustrated with my own photography. Not only am I being paid for the ebooks and articles, but because I'm not too shabby a photographer now, people that read these articles are now booking on my tours, so it's all starting to self perpetuate. Okay, so let's start to wrap this up with just a few more things to that I'd like to cover. Firstly, do remember that this is my journey and not necessarily going to be the way that you might transition into a full-time photography career. I made my own opportunities or had the guts to act on opportunities that opened up to me. Your opportunities are going to be different based on your own location and your specific circles of influence. I'm a big believer in perseverance as a key to success. I've helped countless people to start their own podcasts, for example. All started with excitement and the best intentions and a few, just really just a handful, probably less, um, made it past the first four or five episodes. If you start a podcast hoping to increase your audience as I did, make sure you have more than a few weeks of ideas on your list. Podcasting about something you are passionate about will help because if it becomes a pain to do it each week, you won't stick with it. I mentioned earlier that it's important to start, and it is. You'll obviously not get to episode 5 if you don't do episode 1, but if you stop at 5, you'll be giving yourself a failure experience. Having the confidence to execute and act on your opportunities is vitally important. This is how we get the guts to start stuff. Having said that, it can often take even more courage to fail. 
We all make mistakes and need to be strong enough to admit to ourselves and others when things don't go according to plan. Learn from your mistakes, figure out what you did wrong and then cut the cord and move on. It helps you to do this if you are able to develop multiple revenue streams. Then when one doesn't work, it's not going to take you down. If you rely on only one form of work, that reliance can be paralyzing. So, as I said, this is an outline of my journey so far. It's definitely more complex than I've been able to cover here, but I wanted to touch on some key points. This is my journey though, and I wanted to finish by saying that I'm just getting started. I'm just another guy with a camera, just like you, doing my best to make images that mean something to me and can hopefully cause an emotional reaction in others. The important thing to note here as well is that I'm not heading towards a final goal. To me, the journey is the goal. I want to be an eternal student, always striving to improve my craft and to be a better person. I think the best photography comes from the heart and we can only make our best photography when we understand what we love to photograph and put ourselves in a position to make those photographs. It can be hard to do that sometimes, of course, especially when it might mean spending money to get to a specific location, but that is all part of the journey. You might remember that when I found that I had that pesky brain tumour in 2011, my first, the first time I cried was when I realised that I'd not yet been to Africa. Antarctica, Africa and Iceland were my three bucket list locations and had been for many years. Luckily for me, the tumour wasn't malignant and we were able to remove the majority of it with surgery and are working on the rest with medication. I'm still taking the medication and probably will be for life, but this enabled me to continue to work hard and create opportunities. I was on my way home from Antarctica when the, the tumour started to play up initially. Since then, I've been to Antarctica three more times and this year was fortunate enough to visit both Namibia and Iceland. There's that word again, fortunate. We all have a finite number of days on this planet and at the end of 2013, I feel incredibly fortunate to be living my dream and I hope that some of my experiences help in some small way to give you the courage to live yours. Okay, so before we finish, I wanted to quickly tell you that I'm really excited to be involved in something that's pretty big coming up this January. I can't tell you right now, it's a secret, really, but I wanted to make sure that you know something is coming up so that you don't miss it. This event is going to be a big deal to a lot of people. For example, if you're interested in HDR photography or travel or fa fashion photography, you might need to get better food photography or you're looking to start to grow your own photography business. Maybe you want to sell photography or photography related products online or find out which tools the pros use. And this is only the beginning. I really, I can't say any more than this, but if you are even remotely interested, and you should be, if you're a photographer in, with any, to any level, 
you're going to be interested in this. Go to my blog. As I say, it's at mbp.ac slash 402 for episode 402. And scroll down to the bottom of the blog and you'll see a graphic and a link to click to find out more. I wish I could say more, but I'll probably do a podcast episode on this next week and give you more details. But for now, you know, just go, go and click that link. So really, thanks very much for listening today. Remember that you can find me on Google+, Twitter and Facebook, etc. And links to everything that I'm up to are at martinbaileyphotography.com. So do drop by and take a look. I'll be back next week with another episode. In the meantime, you take care. Have a great week and a very, very happy new year. Bye-bye.